This is the Radio Bible Class, and I'm your host, Tim Carter. We welcome you to our Bible study as a Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with a message that Jesus is alive today. Now, today's lesson is titled Settlement Time, and it comes from 2 Samuel 21, 1 through 14. But before we start our lesson today, Word Talk Inc. could use your support. Now, playing music on the radio may sound simple, but actually it's quite costly due to publishing rights and royalties. And before that first song is ever played, there's utility bills and town rental fees and maintenance and so forth. We need people just like you to help with a tax-deductible gift. So won't you do that today? You can do that by calling us at 601-483-8648. And there they can take your information safely and securely over the phone. Or mail us your gift to Word Talk, Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi, 39304. Now, your gift to Word Talk, Inc. is IRS approved as a 501c3 tax-exempt ministry. Your contribution is never used for salaries or managerial purposes, but 100% of it goes to the expense providing the good news of Jesus Christ to our listening area. Hebrews 13.16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If you'd like to go back and listen to a previous lesson, you can do that by going to our podcast website. That's Radio Bible Class with no spaces between radiobibleclass.podbean.com or catch us wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that's on Spotify, whether it's on iTunes or Google or Amazon, wherever you listen to your podcast, we're there too. Just search for WMER Radio Bible Class. This week, we kick off with chapter 21. It's one of the last four chapters in the book of 2 Samuel. If you remember back to 1 Samuel, we saw, starting in chapter 16, the rise of David as he was anointed to be king and the things that he did right, and then eventually running for his life because of the jealousy of Saul. Then we saw, as we studied in 2 Samuel, David rising to be the king and being chosen to be the king over Judah first and then over Israel. We saw God's promise fulfilled to him that he would have an everlasting kingdom. But starting in chapter 11, we saw David's sin and the decline of his house and then eventually how he was restored. These next four chapters, 21 through 24, are sometimes called an epilogue of David's life. I like how the Commentator John Woodhouse put, he said, These four chapters, they are carefully arranged material that present us with the important perspective of the kingdom of David and the kingdom of God and, of course, the relationship between them. These chapters look back over the whole period of David's reign and maybe even earlier. The text is not arranged chronically but thematically. So as we look at today's lesson about settlement time, I want you to understand that this happened sometime and believed towards the first of David's reign when he became king. It's not chronically happening like we saw all the way through chapter 20. These next four will just be based on the theme and how they all fit together. I think you'll see as we go through our text today that the theme settlement time really jumps right out of the pages. And that settlement is a term that means that we should have to pay, that there's we've accepted something, we've done something, and now it's time to settle up. It's time to make everything even. Over the past several weeks, if you remember, we studied about the coup that was against David and how Absalom got people to go with him and create this coup, this uprising. 
so that he would become king and David was no longer going to be king. Yet there was a settlement date and we saw that that settlement was the life of Absalom that was taken. Well, as we get in our lesson today, we're going to study about how Saul had a vicious act on the Gibeonites. Now, in 1 Samuel, it doesn't really talk about what happened here. So we just have to put a little things together from what we read out of these 14 verses. We learn about the Gibeonites going all the way back to the book of Joshua in chapter 9. Joshua is leading the nation of Israel. They're going through. God has told them to wipe out the inhabitants of the land. The Gibeonites come and they come with dirty feet. They come with moldy bread and they say they're from a faraway land and they want to make a treaty with them. They want to work with, they want a peace treaty with Israel. Now the truth is they just lived over the other side of a hill, but they tricked the Israelites and they make this peace treaty without ever checking with God. And since they sealed this treaty with their word and using it sealed by God, then God expected them to own this. Well, anyhow, bringing you back to where we are, the bottom line is that Saul slaughters these Gibeonites for no reason, and now it's time to settle up for these past sins. So if you would, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 21. We'll start in verse 1. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. In other words, they were three years consecutive. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he has put the Gibeonites to death. So right here in these first two verses, we see that Saul has tried to rid the nation of Israel of these Gibeonites. And he's tried to do it once and for all. Again, we're not for sure why. The Bible really doesn't tell us. It just tells us that he did it in his zeal for the children of Israel and for Judah. Also, we see in verse 1 that there's this famine that's lasted for three years, or, and it's been year after year. Now, the time of the famine's really not important. The point of the author of 2 Samuel is that there is a hardship that is caused on the people. And for three years, these people have suffered because there's a short supply of food. People are hungry now. And so we had this natural disaster going on. And we lived through natural disasters like floods and fires and earthquakes and hurricanes. And I want to point out, there is no way that David could have handled this. This, this famine was beyond the power that he had to take care of it. But it says that the third year after this famine has gone on, he goes to the Lord. He seeks the Lord. And what I want us to learn from this is that when we are in a time of need, when we're in a time of trouble, we need to go check with the Lord on why are we here and what do you want me to learn from this? See, David knew this was beyond his power, so he went to the one who did have power over this thing. We read in verse 1 that he sought the face of the Lord. We've been living through this coronavirus pandemic, this pandemic that has gone across our land. It's disrupted how we work. It disrupted our supply chain. It's just created total chaos. It would be similar to this. No one was in control. This pandemic got out of hand for however it started. I won't make this political. But what I will say is that we should go to God because maybe there's something he's trying to talk to us about, just like he told David. Sometimes when we go talk to God, we don't always find out what the reason is. We see that in the book of Job. 
Job, as readers, we understand what it is, but God never told Job why he was suffering. Job just had to learn to trust God through his time and his trial in life. But unlike Job, we do see that the Lord answers David. And it also makes this a very difficult passage to cover because of the way he answers him. He says there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house, and because he has put the Gibeonites to death. The famine that had lasted now for three years was due to something that King Saul had done years before. If you don't learn anything else from this lesson today, let's make sure you understand to seek God during your trouble, just like David did. He may or may not give you the answer, just like we saw he didn't give it to Job, but we see here that he did give it to David. But David was smart enough, and we see this throughout his lifetime, this wasn't a one-time thing, that when he was in trouble, he went to the Lord. Now that he has an answer, let's look how David responds. Look back at verse 2 with me real quick. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not the people of Israel, but were the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? So right here in verse 2 and 3, we see that David calls forth the Gibeonites. But the Gibeonites really aren't a part of Israel. They are part of the Canaanites or the Ammonites. That's what it says right here in verse 2. And they had been spared their life and not being wiped out because of their false treaty, like I told you at the beginning, with Joshua. There, there was a promise. There was a treaty made on a protection that was given to them by sworn to God. What we also see right there in verse 2 is that Saul was king and that he knew about this treaty. He was raised that they were to be a protected people, and yet he created a genocide. He slaughtered them. He broke the treaty that was sworn to God. Now, this shouldn't shock any of us as we've studied about King Saul that he most of the time tended to ride lightly over what was most sacred. Remember, he's the one that did a sacrifice when it was supposed to be done by the priest or Samuel. And because King Saul created this breach and that he killed and slaughtered these people, King David now goes and he asks, what can I do for you? How can we settle this up? How can you help me bless the inheritance of the Lord? How can you help me make things right with the nation of Israel again? David, in another words, really asks, how can we make atonement for what's been done and remove this curse off the land? Making atonement with God to remove that sin required the shedding of blood. And we're going to see something similar here. Look at verse 4 with me real quick. The Gibeonites said to him, It's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord of Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. The Gibeonites reply saying that it's not a monetary compensation that they're seeking. They were in no position to put anyone to death in Israel, they go as far to say. But those who were a part of this, hand them over to us. 
David says, I'll do whatever's right in the sight of the Lord. Just tell me what I shall do for you. And so they answer him. They say, give us seven men. We want blood vengeance on the house of Saul, not on the nation of Israel. It's not about the nation of Israel. It's about the house of Saul. So give us seven men so that we can hang them before the Lord. Now, based on the time and the eye for eye that was going on at this time, they could have asked for a lot more. So this is a very reasonable request that they only asked for seven men. You also start to see that these people understood about God because they understood that the number seven is a divine, complete number. You know, this would therefore be enough to satisfy their sense of justice, yet it would be a complete number that God would represent. Of course, they go on and tell David that they're going to hang them before God in Gibeah of Saul, the place in which their persecution was organized and where much blood was shed at. They also tell King David that Saul was the one who declared that he was chosen from God. Some commentators say they used this phrase to David because they wanted it to be sarcastic, that he used that term, that Saul did say that, but he claimed to be chosen by God, yet he acted directly contrary to what God's will would have been. And David acknowledges their right, and he promises that the request will be granted. Ultimately, what the Gibeonites tell David is that we want to do what is right before the Lord and not outside the system of justice, but we also want vengeance on the house of Saul. I started off and I told you that this part of the passage was difficult, and it's because we're not guilty for the sins of our parents, although we may suffer the consequences of their sinful act. But in the Old Testament time, the family was held as a corporate unit, and the sins of the head of the family involved all the family. For example, we remember Achan back in Joshua. He stole some of the enemy's plunder, and he was put to death because of it. But not only him, all his sons and his daughters. For his sins, the house was guilty. So I want to reiterate that point that we're not guilty today because of our family's sin. We may live in the consequences of that sin. And that happens a lot. Unfortunately, things are brought into this world. We live in a fallen world and we suffer the consequences of our family sin. But we aren't held guilty to those sins today under the blood of Jesus Christ as it was back in the Old Testament. Now let's continue with what happens. Look at verse 7 with me real quick. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she had bore to Saul, Amari, Mephibosheth, the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Brazili, the Mahalatite. And he gave them in the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now commentators think this happened around the time that Mephibosheth came to live with David. And remember, David asked, is there anyone from Jonathan's family that's still alive? So again, it was around that same time. It would have been early in him being king. But verse 7 tells us that 
He knew that Mephibosheth must be spared because he had made an oath to Jonathan and he superseded the oath that was made on Saul's behalf because he didn't make that oath, even though they honored that oath. So he kept Mephibosheth safe. He, he must be spared. He's exempt from the seven. And then it tells us in verses 8, 9, and 10 who he did turn over. The two sons of Rezpah. And the five sons of Michal is what your verse may say. Now remember, Michal, the Bible tells us that she never had any children. So these would have been the five sons of her sister. And so it is thought that her sister died and she took these children in. And these five sons she raised on behalf of her sister. Commentators also tell us that it's very possible that some, if not all of these seven, themselves have been part of the direct act against the Gibbonites. But we see in verse 9 that he hands them over to the Gibbonites and they are hanged before the Lord. And the Bible goes on to tell us in verse 10 that this was done in the days of the harvest and the first days at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is important because when you plant seed in the ground, the first thing you need to do is water it, yet there's been this drought. There's been a famine because there's a lack of rain. You may be asking, Tim, well, what's this really got to do with me? You said we're no longer guilty to our family's sin. Well, the point of the author, he wants us to understand that God holds the guilty accountable for sin. So even though we may not be accountable for our parents' sin, we may be living through the consequences as we talked about, God will hold us accountable for our sin. The guilty must be punished for their sin. If he's a just God, they will eventually be punished for that sin. Atonement has to be made. Maybe you're listening to me today and you've dabbled in some type of sin and you've not seen a consequence. You've not been slapped on the wrist because of it. You've not seen any effect. Maybe even you've prospered. I want to remind you that God will hold you accountable to that sin. There is a day coming that he will hold us accountable for every sin that we've committed unless we ask Jesus in our heart and we wash that sin and we cover that sin with his blood. Now, this is a very sad thing that happened. Seven men lost their life. They may have participated. They may not have, but they lost it because they were a part of the house of Saul. But I also want you to see how David responds to what has gone down. Look back with me now at verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ahi, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them day or the beast of the field by night. And when David was told of Rizpah, the daughter of Ahi, the concubine of Saul, what she had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul of Gilbo. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan and they were gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and the son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin of Zelah in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Right here we see, ultimately, that David responds to the devoted mother, Rizpah the daughter. She took sackcloth and she laid it out, and she protected her children, even though they were dead, from the fowl of the air and from the beast of the field. 
One commentator says she may have done this as long as six months. Can you imagine doing something like that? Can you imagine watching and protecting your son or your grandson, their body decaying for over six months? Her devotion magnifies the horror of this whole account. When word gets back to David what Rizpah has been doing, he takes down the bodies of the seven men and he retrieves the bones of Saul and Jonathan from Jabesh Gilead. Remember, they're the ones that stole the bodies after they, were, they died right at the end of 1 Samuel. And it says that he buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan with these other men in the tomb of his father, Saul's father, Kish. Because of her devotion, a proper burial was given for her husband, King Saul, her sons, and her step-grandsons. Now, it did not take away the grief that she had. Probably didn't take away some of the frustration and maybe even hatred that she had towards David and his action, but it shows the dignity that was placed back upon them. And we see as this section of scripture wraps up that a process, according to the law, had been carried out and justice had been served and atonement was been placed. And God, because of that, allowed the rains to come. Because of a proper retribution that was made, debts were settled. The execution and the burial made the famine come to an end. You know, you might ask Tim, why bury the bones? Why honor the, these dead? Didn't they break God's promise and therefore create the curse? Well, David was going to do what David did. David was going to honor God. He wasn't going to let some circumstance change who he was. He was about honoring God. If you turn all the way back to 1 Samuel 26 and look at verse 24, this is where David had an opportunity to kill Saul. What does he say to Saul? As your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. See, David understood the value was not in what man thought, but in what God thought. He understood that if Saul was God's anointing, then he would not dishonor God and he would not kill Saul, that it would be left up to God to take Saul on the time that he needed to be taken. And even though Saul had dishonored God's vow, doing this would bring justice, but it would also honor Saul. It brought him to the rightful resting place that he needed to be, and that would be with his father. Let me ask you this question. Do you desire to do the right thing in your life when others are watching? What about when no one's watching? Would you do the same thing? Do you live your life unto the Lord no matter who's watching? Because we need to understand that we, a lot of times, live a life that is an audience of one. And that one is God Almighty who's watching us day and night. And then the other thing we need to understand is that this was an act of faith. David knew the right thing. David went to the Lord in this time of trouble, but David didn't know for sure what he needed to do. God told him the reason why there was a famine on the land, but God didn't tell him to kill seven people or allow seven people to be killed. David acted in faith in trying to do what was right and make atonement. Proverbs 28.20 tells us a faithful man will abound with blessings. David was a faithful man. Did he sin? Absolutely. But was he faithful? Do we see his faith right here acting on what is right based on what he understands the law to be and understanding what God has probably told him, what little he has? I want to remind you that if you are faithful, God calls us to be faithful. We are to be faithful and obedient to him. And if we will do that, 
eventually God will show up with our blessing. It may not be immediate, but God will eventually bless us or bless our household. If we aren't faithful, if we don't have enough faith to do the pre-work or to do what David did, then how do we expect God to show up and bless us beforehand? And someone listening to me right now, you have been told to do something. God has told you to do something and you haven't been faithful and you haven't done it. Maybe it's something that you were supposed to start doing. Maybe it's something you were supposed to stop doing. Maybe it's a relationship that needed to be mended. But whatever it is, you are not being faithful. You're under duress. You're expecting God to be faithful to you, but you aren't being faithful to God. You aren't doing what God told you to do. And it doesn't work that way. It only works when we're faithful, then God is faithful back to us. All his promises have conditions, and most of those conditions is that we have to act in faith. Faithfulness takes work, and faithfulness is just that. It is putting our hands to the plow and not looking back. It is walking by faith and not by sight. I'll close with this final question to you. I think I've already answered it, but do you think David knew what was going to happen, or was he just being faithful? What has God asked you to do that you're not doing? Let us pray. Dearly Father, we come before you today, Lord. We thank you for this lesson. Lord, it's a hard lesson. We have sometimes trouble looking at scripture like this where we see someone pay a price for a part of a sin that was done by their father or their step-grandfather. But Lord, we see these men that lost their life. But Lord, let us understand that there is a price for sin. That under the new covenant that you gave us, Lord, that that we aren't held accountable for our parents' sin. We may be living in the consequence of that sin, but we're not held accountable for it. But Lord, we are held accountable for our sin. Lord, also let us be like David. Whenever trials or difficulties or disasters or pandemics or whatever come into our lives, that we need to examine ourselves. We need to ask, what are you trying to teach me, Lord? Is there some unconfessed sin in my life that I need to get right with you? Lord, let us always remember because of your finished work on the cross that there is good news. Even though that we deserve a punishment, death is what the Bible tells us in Romans 3, that the wages of sin is death, that because of your finished work on the cross, we don't have to face that. We only have to confess our sin. The Bible teaches us that if we will confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of that sin. Lord, so I pray right now, if there's one listening to me that's not been faithful, Lord, maybe you've told them to do something. Maybe you've told them to stop doing something. Maybe you told them to go mend a relationship. Whatever that is, Lord, I pray today they will immediately go do it, Lord, that they will be faithful and understand that that's why your blessings aren't flowing anymore. Lord, I pray for the one that's never asked you to be Lord of their life. They've never asked Jesus to be that atonement, to pay for the sin in their life. Lord, I pray today would be the day, Lord, that they would admit that they are a sinner and they need that covered blood over their life, over their sin. And Lord, they understand that for that penalty of sin, you paid the price. And Lord, that they'll believe on that finished work on the cross. Lord, that you overcame death afterwards. And now we have a blessed hope to go spend eternity with you. And Lord, that they would chase after you. Lord, we thank you for all your many blessings. Lord, we thank you for the blessings you give this ministry. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.